0: Good morning. Really, really glad you are here for those connecting online. How about those ducks? <laughs> I'm sorry. That's pathetic, isn't it? I think it's great. I guess. How about those wildcats too? That was pretty good too, wasn't it? But we both looked like we were going to lose it. but We didn't. Okay, there are three kinds of people in the world, right? I've seen this parsed out in several different ways. Here's the first. Three kinds of people in the world, those who can count and those who can't. (laughs) I think it's funny, all right? How about this one? Three kinds of people in the world. There are the under, the over, and the empty. Right? There are three kinds of people in the world. I don't know which one you are, but I can tell you only one of these is right. Right? And that's this one. That's bad. That's pathetic. Right? Okay? How about this one? There are three kinds of people in the world. People who make things happen, people who watch things happen, and people who wondered what happened. Which are you? And because this is the opening weekend for the NFL, you've got this one. There are three kinds of people in the world, those who think Tom Brady cheated, those who are wrong, and the judge who has them on his fantasy team anyway. (laughs) Right, Perry? How about this one? Never forget the people in your life, three kinds, those who helped you in your difficult times, those who left you in your difficult times, and those who put you in your difficult times. Although I don't think it's about putting other people in one of these boxes. I think it's trying to figure out which box you're in. Right? Now this last one is the serious one. This is the one that I was trying to get to. All right, I stole this from Campus Crusade. And it's so serious that the quality of your life in this world and the destination of your life in the next world is going to be determined by which of these circles describes you. Here it is. Three kinds of people. Circle represents your life. The dots represent the stuff in your life, things that you do, things that happen to you. The chair in the middle represents your throne. And it asks the question who is on the throne of your life? Who is the boss of you? Most people are like that last circle. Jesus, represented by the cross, is on the outside. Self, represented by the S, is sitting on the throne. You decide what your life is all about. You decide what's most important to you. Others look like this. The only difference is that now Jesus is inside the circle instead of outside. Call themselves Christians, but Jesus is more of an advisor, counselor, consultant, maybe kind of like an insurance policy. But you still sit on the throne, right? You're still the boss of you. That may represent a lot of people here or watching. And then others look like this. This time Jesus is actually on the throne. You've actually accepted him as both Savior and Lord, which means you're going to try to do life his way, whether you understand him or not, whether you agree with him or not. And at least according to Campus Crusade in their diagram <coughs> excuse me you'll notice that once he's on the throne, all of the stuff in your life that was somewhat chaotic starts coming into order, fits back in its place. So which one is you? Because you are one of them, although maybe at times you kind of find yourself shifting between these two. Which is you? It's huge to answer that question, guys. Now, months ago, we decided that this year we needed to focus on discipleship. What does it mean to be a Jesus follower in this crazy, mixed up world right here, right now? Everything's changing, right? World is changing, life is changing. So, where does Jesus fit? Where does he fit for us right now? And we've actually kind of spent the last year unpacking one verse. Here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, If any of you wants to be my follower, if any of you guys. This is how to do it. You must give up your own way or deny yourself. You must take up your own cross. You've got to do it daily, 24-7. You've got to follow me. Now, we started out this year kind of unpacking that verse from different teachings of Jesus. How does Jesus explain what does it mean to deny yourself and take up your cross every single day and follow him? And then we just finished last summer looking at what Jesus says about discipleship in the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous passage of teaching in the New Testament. <coughs> Excuse me. And now we're going to try to figure out how the earliest disciples understood it Apostle Paul, Apostle Peter, Apostle John. What did they say about denying yourself, taking up your cross every single day and following Jesus? We're going to start it out by talking from the Apostle Paul in a little letter that he wrote to Jesus' followers in a town called Philippi, Philippians. We're going to look at what Paul says about denying the self. Now, Paul is very countercultural, even in our day. Perhaps even counterintuitive. Now, this is not from Philippians, but I think it's prophetic. Listen to what he says. He says, in the last days... There will be difficult times. Now, I'm not telling you that these are the very last days. No one knows when Jesus is coming back. But what he says about these last days bites. <coughs> Excuse me. He says, for people will love only themselves. They will only love their self and their money. They'll be boastful and proud, scoffing at God. Yeah. They're going to be disobedient to their parents and ungrateful. They'll consider nothing sacred. They're going to be unloving and unforgiving, kind of like a cancel culture. They're going to slander others and have no self-control. They'll be cruel and hate what is good. They're going to hate what is good. You see that happening a lot, don't you? They'll betray their friends, they'll be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and they're going to love pleasure rather than God. They're going to act religious. They'll act religious, but reject the power that could actually make them godly. (coughs) Excuse me. That's pretty telling, I think. And that perspective is a whole lot different than what our culture preaches. I mean... It's opposed to the obsession with self that you see all around us self image, self esteem, self actualization, self worth, love yourself, celebrate yourself, follow your heart, which means follow yourself, and all that other self centered, self absorbed drivel. Listen, guys, self is not a bad thing. God made it, God gave it to you. It's an amazing gift when it is kept in its place. Remember the two great commandments? Jesus said these are the two big ones. You've got to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind and your strength. That's the first and the greatest. Second is equally important. He says you've got to love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, you can't love yourself. Just don't elevate yourself above your neighbor and absolutely do not elevate yourself before God right yourself is a gift from god but do not let yourself rule you he says see i think our self out of control is the worst part of us out of control yourself can pull you away from god way more effectively than anybody else can your biggest spiritual fights in your life are not going to be against people or even against satan and his minions your biggest spiritual wars will be fought against yourself. When yourself is pushing back on God. Thank you so much, sweetheart. Kind of needed that. See, myself is that part of me that wants to be in charge. It's my life, right? I'm the boss of me. It's my body, right? Actually no. Not if you're a Jesus follower. Remember those circles from Campus Crusade? See, myself is that part of me that wants to be in charge. It's that part of me that tends to put what I like, what I want, ahead of what God wants, ahead of what they need. Myself is that part of me that wants the most pleasure and the least pain, even if it means dishonoring God. And denying self is about pushing self off the throne of your life and giving Jesus his rightful place. And here it is, guys, paradoxically, counterintuitively, that's when life works best. That's when it works. That's what brings order to the chaos. You see, when our self unseats our God, it kind of acts like a virus. And it steals our peace and our hope and our joy and our courage and our strength? I'm going to show you. In fact, listen, one of the reasons that so many of us don't experience God's peace and God's hope and His joy and His courage and His strength is that we refuse to let Him sit on our throne. See, that stuff doesn't come by putting self first. It comes from putting God first. Now, It seems like dethroning the self is hardest for many, not all, but for many when life gets tough. And that's when you need God on his throne most. How do you respond? How do you respond when life gets hard? How do you respond when there's a lot of pain? Do you lean away from God? A lot of people do. Or do you lean in? Or maybe you lean in for a little while until you learn that God isn't going to fix things the way you expect Him to, and then you lean away. Sometimes, pain is God's gymnasium for the soul. Myself hasn't always responded well when things have gotten tough. I don't know about you. I mean, sometimes I do okay. So far, physical pain has not caused me to push God off the throne. I mean, a few years back I did fall twenty feet off a scaffold right over there onto my back, broke me up a little bit. It did kind of threaten my life, but it did not threaten my life with God. It never really has bothered me to be sick. It's a little thing, just part of life. Hurts more when Julie gets sick, my kids, grandkids, close friends. Although I have found that I tend to lean harder in towards God. In those times, he gives me strength and he gives me hope. And Julie and I have gone through a lot of really tough times financially. I mean, getting through college, seminary, grad school, working at a really small Christian college, it's not for the money. But money or the lack of it has never really tempted me to push God off the throne. What did was getting fired. I mean, I was doing the job I trained for, doing the job I loved. I was teaching at a small Bible college. I was surrounded by colleagues that I loved and students that I loved, and I thought I'd die there until I got a pink slip for being too controversial. That shocks you, doesn't it, that I would be considered controversial? And what happened to me next, that's when myself started pushing back on God. I started battling rage. And eventually that morphed into unforgiveness and bitterness. And even when I was in the midst of that, I knew it was wrong. And then there was depression. Leaving the job I loved, the people I loved, the future I loved. I didn't sleep much. I hid a lot as I was pushing God off the throne. I was hobbled by my embarrassment. I didn't want people to see me. I didn't want to talk to my friends. After all, I'm just a preacher now. Hated that as I pushed God off the throne. And I was jealous. I was jealous as the school went ahead and prospered without me. They shouldn't do that. I was the star, right? I was jealous as those who fired me moved on or moved up. And all the while I knew that those emotions were broken and dark. All the while I knew that myself was winning over my God. And all the while feeling the peace and the joy and the hope and the courage and the strength fall away. Would have been different, wouldn't it? Dramatically different had I just trusted my God. Like the Apostle Paul did. Let me show you. Now we call Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and Philemon, four of the letters in our New Testament, we call them prison letters. You know why? Shouldn't be too hard. He wrote him while he was in prison, right? He was in prison in Rome. He was waiting on his trial, a trial that could very well have ended with his execution. Now, put yourself in his place. How would you feel if you were Paul in jail, waiting for a trial that you knew might end up with you being dead? What would you be writing about? What would you be thinking about? What would yourself be doing? Now, Paul's life as an apostle had already been pretty daggone tough. This was not his first stint behind bars. He was used to that. <coughs> Excuse me, in addition, he'd been whipped repeatedly, five times, he says, beaten with rods three times, stoned once. He's a pretty tough guy. Shipwrecked. Said so he'd been in numerous dangerous places. He'd gone hungry, thirsty, he'd been in bone-rattling cold. And this was just the latest dark place. About five years before this, he'd been arrested on trumped up charges in Jerusalem, thrown into prison. They'd sent him on to Rome to stand trial before Caesar. On the way to Rome, he gets shipwrecked again. Then he gets snake bit, should have died. And now he's under house arrest in Rome. And he doesn't know exactly what's going to happen to him next. He's chained, maybe to a guard. They didn't give him a sleep number bed. He probably had to rely on friends to bring him food. They probably wouldn't have fed him. Didn't play the victim. No pity parties. Didn't mope around questioning God's power or God's goodness or God's love. How would yourself be doing? What would you be praying about? I suspect a lot of us would be saying, come on, God. I need some help here. Or maybe some of us would start pushing back on God. God, come on. I'm supposed to have my back. I, I got this because I'm working for you. And Paul is writing these letters, these prison letters, and you don't get any need some help here, guys. You never hear a complaint about the food, the lack of privacy, the injustice of it all. <laughs> He's like, guys, things are going great. Our God is good. I mean, look at the doors he's opening for us right here, right now. See, Paul actually cares more about God and about the gospel and about others than he does his own self. He really does. And because of that, he gets back this incredible peace and joy and courage and strength that ought to blow your socks off. And he's there because God is on the throne of his life. Let me show you. I just want to dip into chapter 1 of this little letter, and I'm going to show you four places where Paul tells us how he manages his self. Here's verse 12. (coughs) And if you really get what Paul is saying, it's amazing. He says, I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me here has helped spread the good news. I'm in jail, facing a trial that could end up with my being dead. And God is using this in some amazing ways. How cool is that, he says. He says, for everyone here, including the palace guard, they know that I'm in chains because of Christ. I'm not here because I hurt somebody or cheated somebody, and they all know that. I'm here because I was preaching Jesus. And he says, people who've never heard about Jesus, they're getting to see him. And then he says, because of my imprisonment, because... Most of the believers here have gained confidence, and they are speaking boldly God's message without fear. Which is kind of weird when you think about it. You'd think that Paul's being in prison would scare the bejeigers out of these Jesus followers. did the opposite. Because here's what happens: Courage inspires courage, doesn't it? His courage inspired courage in them. Your courage will inspire courage in those who watch you, right? So be bold. Now, listen, if Paul really means this stuff, it can only be that Jesus is on the throne of his life. He's like, it's not about me, it's about God. It's about loving on those that God loves. And that attitude creates this courage and this peace and the joy when you would expect the opposite, right? next couple of verses are even more amazing to me because of my own experience, but let me set it up for you. A lot of people back then didn't like Paul. Jews didn't like him because he was preaching Jesus so powerfully. Some of the Christians didn't like him because he was way too radical on grace. Grace is radical, guys, even to us Jesus followers, and Paul was just flat out fired up about God's grace. So some of these Jesus followers had mixed feelings about Paul's fall, about his pain. Think about it. How would you feel if some preacher that you hated fell hard? So here it is. Paul says, it's true. Some are preaching Jesus now out of jealousy and rivalry. (laughs) Have you ever heard of a preacher who kind of acts like he's competing with other preachers? It's all about whether our church is bigger or whether it's hipper than theirs. I've known a boatload of them. In fact, it's a fierce temptation for most of us preachers. He says others preach about Christ with pure motives. How cool is that? But those others do not have pure motives as they preach about Christ. They preach with selfish ambition. They want to get their name out there. They're they're not preaching sincerely. They want to make my chains more painful. For them, it's not about Jesus. It's not about Jesus winning. It's about self. Now, my situation wasn't exactly the same as Paul's, but it was similar. There were those who didn't like what I was teaching, and they got me fired. And they thought they had done God's work. My response was very different. Rage, depression, embarrassment, jealousy. Listen to Paul's response. He said, none of that matters. Their attempts to make my chains more painful to me, that doesn't matter. Whether their motives are false or genuine, Jesus is being preached, so I'm happy. And I'll continue to rejoice. It doesn't matter, he says. It doesn't matter if their churches are bigger than mine. It doesn't matter if they are perceived as more cool than I am. It doesn't matter what happens to me because it's not about me. What matters is that Jesus is being preached and people are being saved. Now that sounds unbelievable to us, doesn't it? (laughs) And because actually Paul believed that, where I felt rage, he felt joy. Where I was depressed, he felt peace. Where I felt broken, he felt strong. Because his self was not on the throne, God was. Two more places. I mean, this one here, guys, I wish every one of us could get this. We could embrace this. We could believe this because the difference it would make. Paul says, my desire, my deep desire, my hope is that I will never fail in my duty, but that at all times, and especially right now, right here in jail, I'll be full of courage so that with my whole being, I'll bring honor to Christ, whether I live or die. I don't know what's going to happen to me, he says. They might kill me. They might kill this body. But I'm not going to be ruled by fear because to me, to live as Christ and to die is gain. Do you believe that at all? Do you believe to live as Christ and to die is gain? And if you actually did believe that, what kind of courage would that give you? What kind of strength would that give you? What kind of joy would you taste? By the way, I have seen this attitude in some dying Christians. To live is Christ, to die is gain. I know death is scary. But what if you actually believed right down to the core of your being that what's coming next is infinitely better? You might want to hang around here because there are people that you're loving on. But what if you really believe that what is coming trumps anything that might steal your courage in this life? Peace and hope and joy and courage and strength, they happen when you actually believe Christ is on the throne. One more. And this one grabbed my attention because of one word that Paul chose. I'm going to read his words until I get to the big one. Every single word is about keeping Jesus on the throne of your life, but it starts here at verse 27. He says, Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, because you are. Right now, you're a citizen of heaven, he says. He's your king. So conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news of Jesus. So, are you? You Live in that way in a manner worthy of a Jesus follower? Then he says, Whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I'm going to know that you're standing together with one spirit and one purpose. Are you together? Are we together? Because we're bound together by something that is way bigger than anything that could separate us. Fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. And he says, Don't be afraid. Do not be intimidated in any way by your enemies. No fear, guys, no fear. And that courage is going to be a sign to them that they're going to be destroyed and you're going to be saved by God himself. Then here it is, here it is. For you've been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but you've been given the privilege of suffering for him. You've been given the privilege of faith and you've been given the privilege of suffering amazing privileges. And in the Greek, it's one of my favorite words. If you've ever received a note from me, you'll probably notice I sign it strangely. You'll see the word charis, doc, charis, Steve, doc, charis, something else, right? Charis. (coughs) It simply means grace. What you find in this word is the verb form of it, charizo, grace, gift, privilege. I want you to live in the grace of God. You've been graced. You've been gifted. You've been given the privilege of faith. And you have been graced. You have been gifted. You've been given the privilege of suffering with and for him. Hmm. Listen, guys, if they went after Jesus, they're going to come after us too. And if it's not about you, that's just fine. No fear. Instead of peace, a hope, a joy, a courage, a strength that they will not understand. So let me see if I can wrap this up. Four big ideas. Big idea number one. Here it is. Life is going to be tough, guys. Because we're broken people and we live around broken people. We live in a broken world. And God has not promised to fix all the brokenness yet. But he did promise to give you everything you need to get through it if you trust him. So here it is. God can work through anything that happens to you. Anything that happens to you to draw you closer to Jesus. And to draw others closer to Jesus if you let him. In fact, sometimes God does his best work in us and through us when times are really hard. I'm telling you, in my life, God has used the toughest times that I've ever gone through to shape me. I hope for the better and to use me. And he will do the same for you if you let him. Big idea number two. It is not a sacrifice. Don't talk it like it's a sacrifice to give up good things in exchange for better things. Yeah, I know when you let Jesus sit on the throne of your life, there's some things that you're going to give up. Is it a sacrifice to give up unforgiveness for peace? Is it a sacrifice to give up something that you think is going to make you happy for a moment, for a joy that will never, ever end? Is it a sacrifice to give up anything at all in exchange for what Jesus is going to give you? Here's big idea number three. Listen to this one. You've got to think about it for a second. If you really do deny the self, you're not going to know it. It's not going to feel like you're denying yourself anything because your self isn't driving you. If you really put yourself in its place, off the throne of your life, you're not going to care that you're not getting the praise or the money or the recognition or the pleasure that your self thinks you deserve Because your self doesn't rule you anymore. He does. So if you really do deny yourself, it's not going to feel like you're losing anything at all. One more. Big idea number four. When Jesus is really on the throne of your life, nothing can steal your peace or your joy or your hope or your courage or your strength telling you guys a lot of us Jesus followers live pathetic lives just hoping it's going to be worth it after we're dead and our lousy attitude will never change as long as we are ruled by ourself our attitude will never be changed until we give him his rightful place and then watch how life gets better it's possible there are those who are hurting In this room right now, you need to feel his strength. There are people in this room who have been through some of those hurts, and you need to allow yourself to be used by God. There are those in this room who need to put Jesus on the throne of their life. And there are perhaps people in this room who need a church home, and maybe Capital Cities that place. We're going to sing a song in the next couple of minutes, and during that time, if you want to come and pray or if you want to come and talk to us and make a decision, God's nudging on you. Don't push back, guys. (coughs) I'm going to be right down here. We have an elder praying for you in the prayer room in the back. You can slip back there if you want. You can catch me here after the service. We'd love to talk to you. But before we sing this song together, I want to share with you a blessing that Paul gave to the... Christians in Ephesians, listen to it, it's rich. All glory to God, who was able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. Amen.